Hello. Before we get down to cinema, I would like to draw your attention to our Patreon. Regular listeners will know that these podcasts are supported by Quad, our home cinema in Derby, UK. But as Quad is a charity, we want to make Cinelet as self-sustainable as possible. So, to that end, we have set up a two-tier way in which you can support Cinelit. For our 35mm Cinefans, you'll get a bonus additional episode each month where we will be deep diving into an area of cinema that will be exclusive to Patreon subscribers for at least six months before it arrives like a late dinner guest on the regular feed. Plus, you get the episodes a week in advance of the main feed release. But if you want to support us and don't feel that pressing need to have the additional podcast each month, but still want that warm, satisfying feeling of being part of the Cinelit success story then you can become an 8mm Cinefan, where you can donate and get our heartfelt thanks. Head over to the Patreon page and subscribe if you can. However, we know that times are hard at the moment, so please do not feel you need to subscribe if you are not able. We'll still be putting out new, free-to-listen-to episodes on a regular basis throughout the year. Now let's get back to your regular scheduled broadcast. Welcome to CineLit. Today we are getting nasty, video nasties that is, to coincide with the release of Pranel Bailey Bond's Censor, a film out in August, about a film censor set during the hysteria and moral panic over video certification in the 1980s, our era more colloquially known as the Video Nasties era. I am your host, Adam Marsh, and I am joined by CineLit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? Very well, thanks, Adam. Looking forward to uh, talking about a, a familiar old subject, but hopefully putting a few new spins on it. To help us explore this time period in British film, we are delighted to welcome back to the podcast, John Martin. Hello. John joined us for our episode on Dario Argento last year, where we waxed lyrical about the brilliance of Argento and also the not-so-brilliant bits of Argento's career. Today we are calling upon his history with the video nasties as the author of the 1999 book Seduction of the Gullible. Hello, John. Welcome back to Sealy. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here. Daryl and I have been writing about this stuff for yonks now, and... uh it never goes away, but we're particularly interested today in maybe getting the perspective of somebody from a younger generation. One of those people who was a child being corrupted and their mum and dad were letting them watch video nasties and they were going into the kitchen and reaching for the carving knife. People such as yourself. I Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I am that, I am that six-year-old. Um, yes, I, I wasn't carving people up with a kitchen knife though so video nasties uh, as, as daryl said a well-trod uh, subject maybe maybe not so much to the listeners of this podcast but uh, an era in british fil- film i was gonna say cinema but it wasn't really cinema it was british home video which was I, a brand new thing at yeah, time. C- cinema came into it in was some it? regards because there was kerfuffle about things that had actually been shown in the cinema and the same very same thing on videotape was being prosecuted as some sort of outre outrage and mm. uh, the whole thing is so clouded and hopefully well maybe we'll shine some light on that as we go along cool okay well uh, there you go i mean what what why seriously but why do we have this whole thing because it seems like i think you, we, we've talked about this before off air but like it feels like a massive hoo-ha over nothing nowadays when you can go on the internet and see all yeah. manner of things. In in a word, politics. And in two words, moral panic. Yeah. Now, um, it goes back to um, the Thatcher government being elected in 1979 and 
immediately having to deal with um, the, the problem of mass unemployment in Britain, which they'd sort of pretended they could do something about in, in the 79 election campaign and clearly had no intention of doing anything about. And the situation got worse and worse and worse. So immediately you had hypocrisy where they'd, uh, they put up the famous um, Labour isn't working posters during that election campaign, complaining that there were over, an, over a million people unemployed. Now, within a few years of the election, there were three or four million unemployed. And that was the official figure that was being reported. And riots were breaking out. People were protesting about um, the sort of early days of, of the government. Once, once it sort of became clear what what the what the policies were going to be, and um, it seems that the Conservative Party needed to come up with scapegoats or needed to come up with sort of distractions or, or manoeuvres by which they they could keep public support on on their side and. Um, there were several, but the campaign against video nasties was one of them, and they were a sort of easy target. Now, what, what's fascinating to me about this, and, and an issue that isn't discussed often enough, is the fact that Thatcherism seemed all about things like popular ideas, like home ownership, and in particular, this idea that you can start your own business. With Margaret Thatcher as prime minister, you can start your own business. And a lot of people did. And funnily enough, a lot of people started up their own little corner shop video emporiums, uh, selling, uh, renting um, the, the latest videotapes. In conjunction with that, you've got the major Hollywood studios, very, very wary of, of home video. Warner Brothers, for instance, didn't release many titles early on. They, they, they really took their time over it. And so there was a gap in the market. And of course, when there's a gap in the market, what do you get? Dell boy. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you get fly by night entrepreneurs working out of the back of a van or something, you know, and setting up their own little video labels, getting hold of whatever films they can and putting them out onto the market. So suddenly, not only have we got this new technology coming straight into your home, you've got this big clunky uh, video recorder under your TV. Um, you can put tapes into it and you can choose what you want to watch. But your choice seems to be fairly limited. You can't choose to watch the new Clint Eastwood film. You've got a choice of whether you want to watch this Italian horror movie or this Spanish horror movie, because that's sort of all there was out in the marketplace, it seems. So, yeah, we've got this interesting setup where on one hand, the government is trying to encourage small businesses and on the other, they're taking away the livelihood from those businesses by suppressing the very product that they're trying to shift. Mm. They often say that the, the, the past is a different country sort of thing. And it's like everything you're saying there feels really familiar. But to a whole generation, the idea of not being able to see a film immediately... <laughs> Is, is completely alien to them. I mean, when I, when I was growing up, when I hit my early 20s, late teens, DVD was really coming in. I was working in the video show when that came in. And I remember, I remember literally the, the boss was there saying, it'll never take on. I'm like, <laughs> you are kidding me. You are kidding me. Made purely from just a case of like, you can fit twice as many films on your, on your shelf. 
now. Now we don't even have shelves. You know, you can literally have, have digital spaces where you can keep all your films. So you can pretty much see whatever you want, whenever you want. And just that very concept was 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 so far away from 1979, 80 sort of period when yeah, this you were waiting only, five, only, six only, years for films. Only 40 years ago, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, astonishing, really. Yeah, I mean, for some of us, we've been growing up reading about in fanzines and American magazines about these obscure, you know, a blood feast about all sorts of stuff and thinking, oh, God, if only I could see that. I'll never get to see that. And then suddenly, I mean, I'm I'm not so far along the line that I prefer streaming stuff. I do like physical artifacts. but uh, and, and again, I would keep my, you know, my DVDs and my Blu-rays are so much better than VHS. I so rarely... Uh, watch VHS these days, if ever, but nothing will ever compare with the thrill of going into a VHS shop in the early days of it and just seeing all this stuff. There was one, uh, I went into where they had the sleeves sort of reproduced all over the wall and they directed you to the place in the bins that they were and seeing this stuff. Oh my God, those living dead at the Manchester morgue, those. You know, the blood spattered bride stuff you'd been reading and salivating about for years and you never thought you'd see it. Suddenly there it was. Um, Daryl mentioned, um, Del Boy, uh, and it made me think of Des Boy. Uh, there was this guy, Des Dolan. Des Dolan, who yeah, ran, yeah. uh, Go Video, which is one of the monotorious labels and the stuff they used to put out is terrible. It, uh, a Go, uh, blank tape that they used ran an hour and a half. So if a film ran longer than that, they just, Cut it, you know, cut out 10 minutes. Um, the screen dimensions, the actual framing, everything was awful. But Des was the man who famously, um, put a copy of his own release of Cannibal Holocaust in the mail to Mary Whitehouse and said, call blimey, Mary. Have you seen this? It's awful. And that was a real sort of, uh, stunt that backfired disastrously because that is seen as one of the main things that, uh, got the video nasty bandwagon rolling. Yeah. Now, to, to come back on your point about video shops for, for a moment, John, uh, um, I've, I've never experienced anything in my life quite like the, the first time I walked into a video rental store. Yeah. And, and we're not talking about Blockbuster and things here. When the, in the early days, 1980-81, you'd go into these places, they were sort of tucked away down alleyways and things, and they'd have about 30 tapes, you know, and a guy's sort of smoking a fag behind the counter. <laughs> But you can guarantee that of those 30 tapes, and there were sort of gaps, the, the tapes were sort of socially distant, you know, there were so few that there were sort of gaps on the walls, and they had like a, a rack of shelves that they bought from some, some other shop that had just closed down somewhere, you know. Uh, but you can guarantee that on there were, were, were Dez's Go Video tapes would be there, and things like um, the, the early Vipco Vip tapes Co, and things. Yeah. And, and so you'd have zombie flesh eaters, which again had already been released to UK cinemas. In, in a slightly cut version. Um, but the, the video box trumpeting and proclaiming the fact that this was a longer uncut version. Strong uncut, strong version. uncut yeah. version. Yeah, yeah. And of course, that was the one, the one, the one with that <laughs> sticker on the front was the one that uh, sort of 16 year old me headed straight for, you know. And uh, it was magic. We, we'd never seen shops like this. A shop where you, you went in, you didn't buy anything. This, this was new towards you know, you went in you browsed through the, the sort of two dozen tapes on the shelves you usually grabbed the one with the most lurid and, and interesting looking cover took that to the counter not knowing much about what, what you were what you were sort of paying your pound or two over for 
And then you took that home for three nights, watched it 10 times, usually with your mum and dad or your granny in the same room. I recall fondly uh, a Sunday afternoon where our entire family, me, my two younger brothers and my mum and dad, all sat down and watched a film called Invasion of the Blood Farms. Yes. <laughs> the, the idea that my mum has seen that still tickles me to this day. You know. But yeah, it, it, was, it was different. It was new. And this was something different on the high street. We've Absolutely. never seen anything like it before. The, the problem soon started, as we know. Um, and it's, it's been well documented elsewhere, you know. Uh, it really does come down to, um, to politics and the government needing to sort of focus at the public's attention away from basically the unemployment situation and, and, and all, the, all the sort of areas where their policy was either clearly failing or was so poorly etched anyway that the, there wasn't a policy. So there were, there were various sort of social and, and uh, domestic and, and workplace issues that were just not being addressed by the government. And rather than address them, it was... What else can we look at? How can we sort of divert attention away from that? Mm. And, and in conjunction with the, um, the, the the craze for video, which took off in the UK, un, unlike any other country, the UK went for video in a big way. Whereas Precisely because the British public had been um, deprived of this stuff for so many decades by the BBFC. Yes, yeah. And, it was um, like the floodgates opening. Exactly. And so, so, so that, sorry, that was a natural target. So, as someone who is less um, less uh, familiar with this world, John and Gary, like, the BBFC weren't classifying videos at this period. No, no. no. So basically, they were unclassified. Wild, it, wild west. It was the wild west. <laughs> yes, yeah. So everything was coming out. Where you, and it could be like Bambi, or it could be Bambi gets chopped up by you know, by yeah, knives yeah. or whatever. And this is this is why you got your dodgy entrepreneurs coming in because they they knew a person who knew a person who could get hold of this stuff and import these films over from Europe. And uh, as we've said, the, the major studios, your, your big American studios, saw video as the enemy initially. They, and they didn't want mm. to get involved in it. So while, um, you know, Burt Reynolds and Clint Eastwood films were, were huge at the box office, the studios were sitting on them and not allowing them out for, for home viewing. And so, again, there was, there, was, there was a gap there that the sort of more dodgy-minded businessman could suddenly come in from underneath and say, right, I'll, I'll, I'll take that slice of the market. If Warner Brothers don't want it... I'll have it, you know, and they made a fortune. So there's a name that looms large over over this whole period that probably younger generations, thankfully, don't really know, and that's Mary Whitehouse. <laughs> now, I, I didn't know much about Mary Whitehouse. I only know her from the various different comedy shows that I used to watch and being ridiculed for being hysterical over, over ridiculous things. Um, but she was a real threat in, in, in this respect. You know, yeah, she was yeah. definitely... She had power, mm. genuinely. She had she had the ear of the government, and for for one individual running running a, a sort of fairly sort of underground, you know, not particularly well supported organisation. Um, she was she disproportionately heard. It she? was yeah. disproportionate power. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it's like a Nigel Farage thing, you know. <laughs> very, very, very much. Very much. Um, she just wanted to turn the clock back to uh, the famous five, you know, and anything over and above that was. Uh, 
a serious threat to our way of life. And, and you imagine if she'd actually read a famous five novel, she'd have probably found something to object to. <laughs> well, I find stuff to object to in a famous five. You know, there's, a, there's a pecking order in the famous five. The boys, the dog, the girls. <laughs> the pecking order. So I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's a good model to build but, but this I, future I society you're, on. you're coming at that from a different direction <laughs> to what Mary Whitehouse would have done. You know, she'd, she'd have been okay with that, but uh, they, were, they were curious times and... and you know, as as we're seeing at the moment, you know, in in strange times, strange figures appear out of the ether. But she was conniving very actively with politicians and uh, press barons to whip up and distort evidence and and promulgate um, fantasies and fiction about what was going on. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does feel. I just feel like she she managed to arrive <laughs> at the front of a wave that she created herself in some ways. I guess, I guess from my point of view, looking at it, I, I started to see these films. I say I was six years old in, in the midst of this thing. I remember going to video shops like you were, Daryl. I remember the first dedicated video shop open up because previous to that it was like the corner shop mm-hmm. yeah. that had a wall of videos and that was it, you know. And, and then you you'd go in there and rent the same video each week over and over again as a kid because there was like two kids films on there um the rest were up with these vile vile <laughs> italian and spanish horror movies um but i remember the first video shop opening up and i distinctly remember it because we me and my brother cried so much that we couldn't rent empire strikes back that the guy let us have two videos in our first week yeah. God, God bless that man. <laughs> well, he's, he's 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 trying to hook his customers. He's he's thinking yes. at that time that videos are going to be around for the next hundred years, and he wants to make sure that you come into his shop yes. every week. In you a know. few weeks, I'll be renting them. Debbie does Dallas exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, I mean, this this thing about age is interesting, and and because as 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 John's mentioned, you know. Um, the, the the way the press reported this at the time was was to sort of target the idea that, that, that children were watching these things within the household. Initially, it was reported as though working man from, from Barnsley or wherever, which and this, this was a big thing as well. It became a sort of class thing, didn't it? Um, the way it was reported in the press was, was sort of, you know, working people can get hold of these, these terrible movies and take them home, and they can watch them in front of their children, you know, as, as though this was a sort of coordinated plan. And there are two two things I want to say about um, the sort of junior viewers of video nasties and, and of, of, of videos in, in, in total from that early 80s era. One is that you're now finding that as documentaries are being made about, uh, about this era and as books are, are still being written and articles are coming out, um, more and more people are sort of doing lectures and things on them. You, you do find that people that are sort of your age, Adam, or maybe slightly younger are coming out and, and, and trying to sort of latch on to this and trying to sort of say that they were part of it. You know, you've talked about watching kids' films when you were six, but there are people out there who say, oh, yeah, my mum and dad or my uncle and auntie let me, let me watch Video Nasties in 1982 or 83 or whatever. And, when, and they went to see the Sex Pistols in the three <laughs> Oh, they, the three they, they did, yeah. yes, yeah. Age, age, again, aged six, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then formed the band when they came out. So, yeah, you do, you do get this little layer of, 
I'm going to pretend that I was there because I was alive and, and it was sort of happening. And, and you, you, you weren't, you know, I'm sure none of us can remember much about what we were doing when, when we were six or seven. Secondly, and sort of, um, sort of tied in with that is a, a very good book came out in 1984, edited by Martin Barker, just called The Video Nasties. Barker and his, his team attempted to sort of they were one of the first set of people to try and dismantle and challenge the government and establishment thinking on all this. And one thing that Barker reports in the book is um, a survey that was done among school children uh, to find out whether they'd seen a video nasty so that the press could then report the, the percentage figures, you know, and, and outrage their, their readers by saying 70% of, of children under six have seen a video nasty. The way this was done was they, they gave kids in various schools lists of all the banned films and asked them to tick off which ones they'd seen. And, of course, a lot of kids said, oh, yeah, I've seen Cannibal Holocaust, I've seen Evil Dead, you know, and so on. And um, they were then asked to describe the plots and came up with their own wild inventions. And, of course, what happened is the figures got reported just based on the tick box, it was, oh yeah, 60% of kids have seen um, House by the Cemetery or The Beyond or Cannibal Ferox or whatever. What wasn't reported was that um, similar surveys were done to sort of counter this, this information and... The, the people designing the survey actually put ringers on, onto the list. They, they invented film titles. And, of course, a lot of the kids said that they'd seen the invented titles as well, which made a mockery of the whole thing, destroyed all of this so-called evidence. And yet um, the press, of course, picked up on the bits of that that, they, that, that fitted their agenda. So even today, it's, it's sort of gone down in accepted history that... Lots of children were watching video nasties, and and that that was actually far from the truth. And they've all got vivid memories of seeing sex with the headless corpse of the Virgin astronauts. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, Bambi goes crazy, ate bonkers with his drill and sex, that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> a couple of young ones references there. Yeah, but I, I find that I find that whole fascinating because, like now and now, obviously, there's this this starting to feel like there's concerns about internet viewing and things like that and, and the way that the BBFC currently don't have any say over internet videos I don't know how they're going to be able to recall to, 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 to ever get involved because it's a worldwide thing but it feels like some of those concerns are resurfacing over the last five ten years with it and obviously it goes back to the to, to history as well this is not a new thing have the video nasties era opened up the floodgates and because like a couple of battles were lost early on, but ultimately the war was won yeah, against yeah. this. Have we opened up the floodgates and maybe that's not a good thing? Well, it's political again, Adam. The, the way the establishment deals with this sort of thing is, and you, you, you use the terms there, battle and war, you know, and that's what the video thing was like. In, in this instance, the establishment, the conservative government, Mrs. Whitehouse... The protesters, the, the the British press, won a few battles and they got a few films prosecuted and they got a few films cut, they got a few films suppressed. One issue we can go on to talk about later is, is individuals actually being targeted, collectors being targeted and actually fined or imprisoned, which is outrageous. And that may be something that people aren't aware of. But a few battles were won by the establishment. Ultimately, they they lost the war and 
what happens when the establishment loses a, 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 a conflict like that? They, they come up with another way of winning it. And the way they do that is to monetize it and, and see how, okay, if we've got to have films about people having all their limbs chopped off and being decapitated, <laughs> how can we make money out of this? How can we stop Des Dolan and Del Boy and, and these, these dodgy back of the van people making black market profits on this when we could actually make him big money on it. So it's all bought under the wing of the establishment and it's monetized and, and profitized. This, I'm sure, will happen eventually with um, online services. Um, in, in some respects, it already is, you know, with um, linked in with, with directly linked in with films and so on. You're already seeing that with streaming services who are seemingly able to to make produce and broadcast content a lot of which is influenced by by the video nasty era mainstream series like walking dead game of thrones and so on water cooler tv that that is is beamed out as mainstream television I, I remember the the ex-editor of Fangoria, Chris Alexander, writing a column about Walking Dead in in Fangoria magazine um, some years ago, and and sort of say, saying in 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 astonishment, you know, what what's next? A, a, a cannibal a cannibal TV series, you know, an, an Italian cannibal type show, you know, and I'm I'm sure if there hasn't already been one, there probably will. I'm sure that's. In, on someone's word processor or in the pipeline at this very moment. And it's extraordinary to people of our age mm. to, to see this stuff going mainstream. But the reason that's happening is it's, it, that's the way that the establishment actually takes control over all of this. And, and that's happening to sort of visual entertainment online. Um, and I'm sure that will happen to other forms of internet broadcasting and internet content in in due course. One area where I've been very, very surprised that there hasn't really been much of a clampdown, and it's it, it's something that people like me and John are maybe a bit too too old to sort of know much about, but it but it's huge. It's 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 the, the biggest thing in entertainment, in home entertainment, I think at the moment, is the video game, the, the whole gaming world. Why has that not been targeted in the way that conventional film and television entertainment has been? Well, like Daryl, I haven't particularly gone, gotten into that uh, leisure activity, but uh, and maybe here I'm going to promulgate again myths of the sort that I, you know, um, criticised during the Video Nasties era. I am more or less reliably told that there's a, an element of uh, ground theft auto where you can stop off to have sex with a prostitute and if you don't fancy paying her you can shoot her before you resume your car chasing antics and uh Again, maybe I've been misinformed, but if so, what? You know. I mean, I mean, I, I'm no expert on the world of gaming, but Grand Theft Auto is a certificated game. Yeah, it has gone through the BBFC. It has been classified as an 18 certificate, so anyone under the age of 18 shouldn't be playing those games. So there's classification in place. There, there is classification in place. I mean, only in the last, oh, I'd say, 20 years. I mean, yeah. the late 90s. I, mean, I remember working at Blockbuster and there being certificates on the games. Yeah. Now we we actually fought and fought and fought for classification of the video nasties. The, our generation wasn't against classification of, of, of cinema. 
But what, what we're we, old enough to see them and we want to see them. Yes, yeah. yeah, what we were putting forward was the idea of if, if you must have control over this, if somebody must control what we see, please do, but allow an adult audience to see uncut adult fare, you know, and, and if, you, if you're going to impose restrictions, don't impose it on, on grown-ups, basically. I get the sense that there's a little bit more leeway and things are a bit more lenient in the gaming world. There's no sort of director of public prosecutions list of banned titles, which is what we had in 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 the mid eighties, for instance. No, um, but I think I think because of the fight that was for for video nasties in the eighties, when the games that were aimed at adults started coming through in the nineties, you know, you 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 like Grand Theft Autos and your bigger your bigger games. Half the battle's already won. You know, for that kind of, we don't censor thing. You know, the idea of censoring stuff uh, for the sake of protecting the moral, um, the moral integrity of, of Britain. That had kind of already been worn in some ways. So a lot of the, they weren't starting from the same starting ground as the video, video Nazis were, and also there was a lot more money involved in those games yes. at that period. It wasn't like your little bat out of the back of a... Those days are gone. That, that, that was the 80s gaming boom. The 80s gaming boom was a guy in his bedroom designing a game and then flogging it the next week. By the time the 90s come around, you had companies that were big, major companies that were putting out games. And they were the Warner Brothers. They were the paramount yeah, yeah. well, of that Dar- period. Darby, of course, knows all about that because we're, we're the home of uh, home of Tomb Raider. So, exactly, yeah. yeah Lara yeah. Croft was born not that far away from yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, and they were a small company, but their small company still had a whole bunch of people employed by them. They, they, they weren't out of the back of a lorry, yeah. you know, one man in his bedroom thing. Um, they, they were a company who quickly got bought out by another company on the back of the success of Tomb Raider. So yeah. I, I think that starting ground was a different starting ground. And the amount of money that these things were making kind of protected them yeah. from, from major prosecution for many years. I mean, it did come down eventually because parents didn't know where to start. They were, they were like, I think in a similar, in a different way to get to films. People know what they watch a film and they go, okay, that film is not suitable for my nine year old. Whereas with games, no parent is playing. 70 hours of Grand Theft Auto <laughs> to discover whether you can hire a prostitute and then shoot them. You know, no one's doing that. Yeah, that's, so that's the difference there. You know, at, at least Jess Franco film, cannibal films are sort of 85 minutes long. So yeah. you, you, you know, you, sometimes you, they seem a lot longer. Yeah, they, they do indeed. God, yes. They do indeed. Now, now, John, like, I, I wonder if, like me, you take a, a lot of satisfaction in what Adam is saying there in this notion that. Our victory that we sort of campaigned for amongst other people, amongst a, a, a generation of fans of this sort of extreme cinema, we we ultimately won that war. And Adam was suggesting there that that then that then set a new benchmark that that um, gaming companies and anyone else coming up with any sort of new platform in entertainment. Has, has now, now suddenly had this new starting point to work from that we'd sort of set in place. You know, we'd said you can have entertainment at a certain level of, of extremity and with a certain level of content in, and there's nothing that you can do about that because if you do, we will rise up and, and, and challenge that. I'm, I'm very satisfied by what Adam's saying there about how it, se- it seems to me you're suggesting that we'd, we'd sort of set this new... Um, 
sort of level. Um, how, how, how do you feel about that? Well, it'd be interesting to think that we achieved something over and above the pittance we've earned from writing about these things over the years. But we do congratulate ourselves on winning the war. Another film that was um, looked at by by the uh, director of public prosecution and ended up on video nasty lists, and to my knowledge has never been released in Britain, was a film called Fight for Your Life, which was uh, sort of fairly, yeah, it's a low-budget, but fairly mainstream um, American sort of home invasion thriller from the late 70s. But... Um, pits um, white white criminals against a black family and does so in a way where it's a violent film but maybe no more violent than a lot of stuff that you were seeing in the cinema at the time but um, it's it's an interesting title um, to include in the video nasties discussion because it's um, main sort of uh, its its main sort of threat and its main sort of um, sort of problematic issue is in terms of language. It's in terms of the film's dialogue. It's nothing to do with the visuals. It's what the characters say to each other. And it's the old Alf Garner thing again. You are meant to be watching <laughs> till death is to part and fight for your life. You are meant to be watching it and despising the person who's spouting the racist garbage. But from a censorious point of view, it's well, will the uh, Will the working classes understand that that's the bad stuff and uh, they're supposed to be against that? They might take it as gospel, you know. Yeah. So it, it, it's, again, it's those sort of perceptions. That, that kind of classification thing, is it, that's, that's still there now. I mean, maybe not now, but definitely when I, when I first started working in cinemas uh, around about 2000, in those early 2000s, there was a quite a lot of sexually explicit films being released into art house cinemas. Yeah. Things like Romance, things like uh, Intimacy with Carrie Fox and things and, like that. And stuff like I Know Corrida was being uh, I Know Corrida was re-released. Yeah. Yeah. So, so things that were quite extreme, quite high-end um, uh, sex films. <laughs> what, yeah, yeah. Obviously a lot more going on in those movies. Well, this, They this, were all this released. Was, this was the legacy of uh, James Furman, of course. It was, just, it was just like these films were being released... And you kind of got the feeling that because they were art house cinema and because that they were only being played in middle class, predominantly middle class um, uh, attended cinemas up and down the country, they kind of got a pass in some ways that maybe something like um, something a bit more mainstream wouldn't have done. Um, and, and because, you know, the, can the working classes really managed to understand these films for what they are without a degree. You know? There's there's very much a, a class issue mm. here and and in all forms of, of this type of argument. You know, it, it, it goes back again to Lady Chatterley's lover, doesn't it? Would you allow your servants to read something like this? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and and I mean things were being reported in newspapers and in articles in in the eighties. Then you read lines like, you know, should should we should we expose a factory worker in Bradford to this sort of thing? And you were actually getting this sort of stuff in newspaper articles. Mm -hmm. So there was this perception that um, that yeah, it's all right if you want to watch it at the the Everyman Cinema in London, you know, and if if you've paid your membership to to go to an art house cinema, you're allowed to watch this stuff. 
if you want to take it home and watch it in front of your, 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 your you know while you're eating your beans on toast and with your kids playing around <laughs> you oh that's that's a no-no so yeah there was very much sort of class class thing going on there but um it was interesting that um the um the the, the relaxation in in sexual imagery which occurred in in the year 2000 we, we can pinpoint it because that's the year that james Furman retired from his long-held position at the bbfc now if we had another sort of hate figure alongside mrs whitehouse during this whole sort of 80s period it was mr Furman. And then was it in, into the 90s we got uh, David Alton? David Alton, MP, he was yes. He yeah. in the Hall of uh, yeah. Fame, yeah. Well, David Alton, this was, again, a, an exhibition of how the video nasties thing really all, all played out, in the, strangely enough, in the Orwell year of 1984. But... Um, the whole David Alton thing showed that it hadn't gone away, mm. that it was it, it could sort of be revived at any time. If if it was needed as an excuse, they could they could pull it out of the back pocket. Well, there was this particularly unfortunate case up in Liverpool of this kid, Jamie Bulger, who was mm. um murdered by some of the children and the judge said he couldn't work out why the children would be in such a frame of mind. Maybe they watched violent videos. And the uh, sort of red tops managed to turn this into, yes, they watched Child's Play 3 and that's where it all came from. There's absolutely no evidence for this. Alton, my particular favourite memory of Alton was when he would repeatedly spout the police were shocked by the connections they found between the murder case and the film uh, Child's Play 3. And if you go back and look at the reporting of the crime, the police repeatedly said this has absolutely nothing to do with videos, but Alton repeatedly said that they believed it was connected. And, of course, nobody in the media ever challenges this stuff. It just goes into uh, the folklore, you know. Um, but, but yeah, he was a particularly uh, odious individual. He, you know, he made a name for himself, a platform. He was eventually elevated to the House of Lords. So he did all right for himself. He did, as, as they all do. You know, there are figures like Graham Bright mm. who sort of went through the same process, you know, politician with an agenda, you know, mm. picks up on the whole video thing and um, uh, is, is given various gongs and titles <laughs> afterwards, you know. But... Um, an interesting thing came out of the in the in the wake of the the whole Alton and, and James Bulger business. There was new legislation suggested, and um, I, I don't know how far it got in Parliament, um, but I'm sure there were debates about this because a, a big thing, even even in even as late as the early nineties, a big thing was that you'd go to to Woolworths, you'd buy a pack of blank VHS tapes, you'd go home, put them in your video recorder, and you'd tape programs and films off the TV. Um, one one of the points of discussion was that they, they there was there was actually a threat at one point that that legislation was going to be brought into the UK that said that if you record anything off your television you can only keep it for twenty eight days in your own home and you must then wipe the tape. Now anyone younger than us listening to that is going to to be there. You, you simply won't believe what I'm saying, will you? I mean that that's a ridiculous sort of idea and was never ever going to hold water. But my, my dad had the entirety of the Live Aid concert on video and he wasn't wiping that for nobody. <laughs> this this brings up a, a rather more sinister and more genuine 
sort of issue, though, which was actually happening a few years before that in, in the sort of mid to late 80s. In the wake of the whole video nasties furore and the director of public prosecution drawing up a, an official list of banned titles, which gave John a handy checklist for your book, didn't it? You know, they, they were. And I still missed you. a few. <laughs> but um, uh, in the wake of all that, obviously, new legislation had to come in, and uh, the British Board of Film Classification. Um, or censors, whichever one you want to, whichever term they were using at the time, were, were given new powers. They had to now sort of classify videos as well as cinema films. So to, to address what you were talking about earlier, Adam. Also, um, police raids began around the country. And there were a lot of people, myself and John included, who'd, who'd amassed huge collections of videotapes often through through the pages of various um, British fanzines, which was the sort of network. Again, there's no internet or anything at this point. You know, um, we're doing everything, sort of sending letters through the post to each other and sending padded envelopes through the post or sending a tenor in an envelope through the post and getting back two videotapes, you know, and, and, and finding out who's got what through the, through the back pages of a, a sort of rather poorly produced um, and poorly typed uh, fan, horror fanzine, you know. And again, me and John were, were heavily involved in that whole scene too. This never happened to me. And I, I don't know about yourself, John, maybe you can tell us in a moment, but I think we both know friends and certain individuals who were treated like, like, effectively, like, like drug criminals. Pariahs. Yeah, yeah. You, the, the police would raid houses. The, the traditional police battering your door down at six a.m. in the morning, coming in, looking through your video collection, and taking half of it away with them, and then you'd get a fine. You, in some cases, you might even go to prison. Case in point, a friend, friend of mine who still lives locally, friend who lives in in mid Derbyshire wasn't arrested, wasn't fined or anything, but tried to import a video copy of Stuart Gordon's film Reanimator, Reanimator. Through, from America through the post. And um, it was a film that, again, had been released in UK cinemas in a slightly cut version. It had had great reviews. It had been acclaimed by, by fans, but it had been acclaimed by many critics too. It was seen as being very exciting, sort of new... Um, step forward for the horror movie and my mate tried to order a, a copy from the States and all he received instead, instead was a letter from um, the UK Customs Office saying we've received this passage, package um, we've opened it up and we've played this tape and we found it's on a list of prohibited material and he, he was told that he could actually um, I, I, I think he was told something like he, he, he could go down and, and collect the package in person or go down and, and talk to them about why he thought it, he should be allowed to, to receive this parcel or something. But uh, I, th I think that was, you know, anyone receiving a sort of message like that stayed well clear. And um, so, so that was an example that I know of, a, a, a direct friend of mine, you know. But we were hearing stories of people actually... Getting big fines or, or doing prison time, and uh, 
for, for, for owning videos that you can, you can now go into HMV and buy with a 15 certificate, you know. And again, it's, it's absolutely unbelievable. And the, the point a lot of people made when they were raided was uh, you, you did hear stories of people pointing out to the police that, yeah, okay, I've got films that are on the banned list in my collection. I've got Cannibal Holocaust and I've got all of these sort of uh, outrageous zombie films and so on. But if you look through my whole collection, I've got films dating back from the 1890s in there. I'm, I'm a horror film fan. I'm a horror historian. And I, I, I love everything from the silent era through the 30s and 40s, through the science fiction films, through the Hammer films. And I'm only, I'm only collecting these films because I see them as part of a history. And that, of course, cut no ice whatsoever with the authorities, even though in most cases it was absolutely true. Mm. My favourite raid story is that uh, there was a raid in Essex at the height of this panic. And uh, I don't know if Daryl realises where this one is leading, but there was uh, a Eurasian police officer that was there, a lady officer, and uh, the... Her colleagues were going through this guy's collection going, oh, my God, Deep River Savages, this is awful. Eaten alive, the last survivor. Cannibalism, real cannibalism, because that was the line that was being pushed in the media at the time, that people were eaten, really being eaten in cannibal films. Anyway, this uncomfortable young uh, WPC was going, yeah, that's shocking, because she was, in fact, Mimi Lai. And she had starred in all of the movies I just mentioned <laughs> and subsequently became a policewoman. But uh, on a less amusing note, um, the sort of levels of hysteria that we're talking about were just ramped up by just such astonishing uh, comments like the aforementioned Graham Bright. I couldn't move on without mentioning this, that Graham Bright MP, who had his name put to the allegedly private members bill that became the Video Recording Act. It was all actually... Um, really closely managed by Leon Britton and co. But anyway, he was quoted as saying that video nasties had a bad effect on young minds, but also they had a very detrimental effect on dogs. <laughs> <laughs> and if anything could illustrate to a younger generation who is historically removed from that, just how ludicrous the whole thing was. And if you get the uh, Ban the Sadist videos, I think, which is, um, no, which is the, the documentary by... I, I, I think it's on Jake West. It's so Jake one of the two that Jake yeah. and Yes. Uh, anyway, that is freely available, and you'll see the footage on there called from the news of Graham Bright saying that Video Nasties had a very uh, bad effect on dogs. I think there's possibly also the stuff on there in which um, George Eastman in heavy makeup is uh, sort of pretending to eat a skinned rabbit, <laughs> which is supposed to be a fetus. And this played on news at 10 as uh, a clip from a snuff movie. Yeah, I, so, I recall seeing that very news broadcast. My God. Uh, thinking, <laughs> I, I Who would ever forget that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But this, those were the times we were living through, and it's quite appalling and astonishing. I think Graham's dog just was disappointed that straw dogs had a distinct <laughs> lack of dogs in it. Um. <laughs> but the other thing that came from this, of course, was a real community emerged because this stuff was forbidden fruit obviously people wanted to see it and I, Daryl to a certain extent yourself I, 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 well I know, yeah I've sat down and watched the stuff on this list because it was on the prescribed list my god, a huge proportion of it is stuff that you wouldn't show to your worst enemies you know, really really poor stuff um, although interestingly enough a lot of the stuff that I dismiss as poor stuff and 
uh, oh my god, never want to watch that again. There are quite serious books these days being written, like Stephen Thrower with his American Nightmare, and and all sorts of um, humble um, auteurs are being uh, talked of um, in in quite yeah. lofty terms. Case case in point, um, one one film in your book, uh, Seduction of the Gullible, which I happen to have a copy of. You go for Blood Rights, um, is Blood Rights, yeah. yeah, which is a, a film better known as uh, the Ghastly Ones, if it's known <laughs> at all, and, and it's one of only two video nasties. I, I think it's one of only two that actually date from the nineteen sixties. And, and again, it's, it's outrageous that, that films as old as that were, were being included on this list. This is a film from 1969, and John dismisses it in about ten lines in, in his book. You can hardly find anything to say about it. You, certainly... you can sense me trying to keep my eyes open watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you finish up by saying, I don't know what else to say about blood rights, except that I hope and pray I never again have to sit through anything quite so mind-numbingly bad. Now that's that's fair comment to an extent. But, I did recently rewatch it as part of the Severin box. Yeah, because um, Severin, the the label that's run by uh, our, our, pals, our pals from Nottingham, yeah. David Gregory and Carl Daft, who uh, are now, are now, now David's now sort of relocated to America, where he sort of beams all this stuff out from. They've recently put together a box set based on the work of the director of The Ghastly Ones, or Blood Rights, as it was known over here, Andy Milligan. Now, Andy Milligan has become notorious over the decades as the world's worst filmmaker or, you know, somebody who doesn't know which way to hold or point a camera. And there's something in that. But um, this box set and books about Milligan and uh, analysis of his work has taken a new turn. He's now been seen as, as very much in, in tandem with the likes of John Waters as a sort of outsider artist, working with the stock company, working with particular themes in his movies. And they are, they are good or bad, at least they're now being sort of addressed and taken seriously and given serious film criticism. And if you told us that watching this film... 38, 39 years ago. I, I simply don't know what, how we would have reacted. Well, when I began uh, writing film criticism, the, the, the sort of the pantheon was occupied by people like Terence Fisher, Roger Corman, Val Newton, and so on. But now a lot of the... Barber. Barber is, if anything, his stock has increased... But the other guys have kind of dwindled in relation to the way that people like um, Al Adamson and Andy Milligan are yeah. now revered. It's well, there have been box sets in yeah. the past six months for uh, William Graffay and Bill Rebane, yes. you know. Yeah. So, so we're, we're, we're sort of reaching the bottom of the barrel there on, on the sort of 1960s and 70s um, sort of regional filmmakers whose <laughs> films are... Not in no. in some cases, I think they're worthy of this reanalysis. Um, in others, they really are bottom of the barrel. But that doesn't stop um, the the uh, the boutique Blu-ray labels from repackaging their stuff and presenting it in in a way that that says, "Look, this is this filmmaker's body of work. Buy it and take it or leave it." You know, I, I still find Milligan's films a hard watch. He has become, in my mind, something more like William Burroughs in that. His life 
is more interesting and that's that's fair comment than, although, although I must say watching his films in a batch as as I did uh, when the box set came out I'm, 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 I've always liked his stuff more, perhaps more than I should. And I, I'm now a confirmed and committed fan. I, I now, I now regard him. I now sort of see him in, in the same sort of ballpark as John Waters or one of these, even, even an Andy Warhol, you know, yeah. I, I, I think, I think he's got that sort of thing going on. And maybe it's the sort of repetition of, of, of use of actors and that sort of stock company mm-hmm. idea, which is something I always take to. I love that in artists, you know, but um, I, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, as you say, um, people like Stephen Thrower are now, I, I, well, I think Stephen's always taken these artists seriously. He he was the one person from that fanzine generation who would um, go out to bat for these mm-hmm. guys, you know. And he's and he's he's now doing it more and more. And as you say, doing it in now glossy coffee table books. And he has come from that fanzine thing. I mean, yeah, slightly yeah, yeah. later than ourselves, marginally so. But he's taken it to another level, and it's interesting that. Um, Again, the fact that the fanzine thing and the the trading thing all emerged because this stuff was forbidden fruit. Yeah. Um, with, with regards to sort of like the elevation of potentially low <laughs> low art to high art, I think maybe that's that's how what one of the side effects of this video nast is by creating a list of films that are deemed wrong, bad terrible etc and you've got people like Argento on that list you've got people like Barber on that list you automatically you get well no these people are not and you and they write about these people because they are being classified mm. unfairly and then you get to the point where we've already elevated Argento we've already elevated Barber we, 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 we're working on Jess Franco you know and there's all these other directors that we work there and you get to that bottom of the barrel where you're still looking for what, what is there must be something here I, I think because so. it's alongside yeah. Argento yeah, yeah. I, I think so I think I think you know we, we've reached that point I think as as, as writers and analysts and, and critics where you, you you do exactly that you you look for the nuggets in a, in a film like Frozen Scream which is a complete write-off you know there's nothing good about that but yeah you do sit down and watch it or Mardi Gras Massacre or something like that and the films are now being made available on Blu-ray, so you are able to see them in their sort of correct ratios and presented. I, I say presented as the directors intended. I'm not sure that's an appropriate phrase here. I'm not sure these directors gave a damn about how their films are presented. But they're, they're being presented at least um, without the, the image being cropped as, as they often were on VHS tapes. I think Stephen Thrower reported on a, a Blu-ray recently that um, uh, Jess Franco's film, The Demons, the Demons Lay Demons, yeah. on, on its VHS release in Britain, there, there are points in that film where we're actually only looking at 30% of the frame. And that's that's outrageous. That is outrageous. And um, but that was Des Dolan again, wasn't it? It was. It yeah. was. And he he didn't give a damn, did he? So uh, so yeah. At least now we're able to judge these films properly, and it doesn't necessarily make them any better in every case. 
But I, but I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Adam, in saying that uh, this, this whole thing about the director of public prosecution making up these lists, and there are sort of three lists of video nasties, as covered by Jake and Mark Morris on their excellent uh, video packages, their DVD packages. We had the 39 films that were actually banned. There were other films that were looked at with a view to banning them, but then they, they were maybe allowed to be released in in a cup form um, or or shown in in particular circumstances. And then there was a a third list of the films that had been sort of considered and looked at and then dismissed and allowed through. So uh, I I think on the third list, dealers were allowed the um, option to hand them in and concede it and avoid prosecution. Yeah, yeah. And that included stuff like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, Friday the 13th, Phantasm... Scanners. So all, all all films that we'd regard as being fairly mainstream and yes, all that have absolutely. been released to UK cinemas, because I've seen them all in UK cinemas. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a remarkable list. I mean, like, both Friday the 13th, 1 and 2 are on that list. Uh, um, Rabid, yeah. Prom Night, yeah. you know. <laughs> so this Prom Night, yeah. Prom Night, you know. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and these lists have actually distorted a lot of people's views about what is and isn't a video nasty because a lot of titles often get mentioned as, oh, that was banned or People that, was, Texas on, Chainsaw that was on the video was nasty the, list. The definitive, when you actually look at the yeah. list, there are a few surprises on there. Night of the Living Dead was a section three title. Night of the Living Dead. It's, it's just crazy. One, one of the things looking at, because I'm, I'm never, I'm, I'm a horror fan, as, as people know. I do like horror films, but I was never that guy who was obsessed by seeing the uncut versions of things. I figured if, if a film's lost three minutes or two minutes or 30 <laughs> seconds, I'm not, I'm still getting the overall picture. As long as I'm not seeing 30% of the frame, uh, you know, I'm still getting the movie that was intended. But a lot of other fans don't feel that way. And I think maybe, maybe this is part of that, that kind of culture of is it yeah, uncut? Yes. Yeah. Do, do you think, John, we, we were, we were actually educated by VHS in that sense? Because when, when the first video stores opened up, the rental stores in the UK, we didn't know what we were getting. As you say, we'd, we'd read about some of these titles. Mythical in titles, some of them. And then yeah, stuff yeah, we didn't yeah. even, what is that? Yeah. And then when, when you finally got your hands on them and were able to rent them, A, it was magic. Mm. B, you took them home and played them, as I say, often in front of your parents or your auntie or your granny or whatever. But we, we didn't actually know that the films were were cut or uncut. We didn't really know what we were getting. We were learning as we and, were. And it, it, it was gradually through the circuit and through talking to other people and, and through the explosion of the fanzine mm. where people were, were suddenly writing letters in and, and um, getting each other's addresses and writing to each other and so on. And this was um, all pre-internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Word began coming out that, oh, do you realise that, that that film, that version of the film is actually missing 15 seconds or missing a minute. Oh, no, I didn't know. And I think it was that network yeah. that sort of created all of this. And there was a compulsion to see it. There was forbidden fruits. Yeah, yeah. As if somebody says, you can't see this, obviously, as an autonomous adult, you're going to say, fuck you, I'm going to try and see it now. But uh, and this is, it's a very male thing, isn't it? It's like the goes back to uh, us allegedly being hunters in prehistoric times. You want to get the whole thing. You want to, you want to get the whole mammoth and eat every bit of meat on it. You want to bring it home to your <laughs> family. You want to see. Uh, <laughs> you, you want to see everything. You know. It's a stupidly violent version of Pokemon. Then you've got to catch them all. Yeah, it's, com- <laughs> yeah. it's completism. Yeah. 
completely yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, as I say, I, I, I was six when it happened. So a lot of these films were being released on DVD when I was 21, 22, something like that. So I got to see them on court mm. or as near as damn it, I guess, when, when they came out on, on, on DVD. But my only real, um, Outrage that made me feel like actually no, I, I am actually upset. These things are being cut. Was less to do with the video cuts and more to do with TV cut for TV. Because mm-hmm. like I, I had a, I had a version of Lethal Weapon that I watched over and over again up until I was about eighteen, nineteen, something like that. I came to university, was working at a video shop, fancy seeing it again. Took it home. That means like twenty minutes longer. Yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. sequences in that that were completely cut out of my version. So that's when I first realised that um, these films were films were being cut. Yeah, and again, it's not just you know we're we're, we're talking about video nasties here, and they they were sort of uh, subject to uh, a lot of censorship and 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 oppression and so on. But this was applying to mainstream films, Lethal Weapon. You've just mentioned there things like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Again, people people were sort of watching these and finding out exactly the same thing that you did, Adam. You know, they they'd sort of watch them in a TV version or they'd watch them in the cinema where they might have been cut and then they'd buy them on on VHS or Blu-ray or DVD or whatever format and suddenly notice a scene or two that they'd never seen before. So, yeah, censorship isn't just for, for cult movie fans like us folks. It's, it's, it applies to you. It applies to, to the, the, any mainstream fair that you might be watching. I, so be, be vigilant. And, and bringing this bang up to date, I was watching 40 Towers on TV last night, um, and uh, it was the Basil the Rat episode, and there's one scene where he's in a conversation with the Major, and it's so obviously cut... And the major's probably saying something racist, and uh, but very, very awkwardly, uh, abruptly cut. Yeah, I think Faulty Towers has has had a few issues recently, mm. and um... but again, you're not supposed to be uh, right, uh, yeah right on the major's talking to truth like it is, man. You're supposed to be seeing what a fool he is. Yeah, he's 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 a, he's a racist. He's written as a racist character, he's and, he, and from he's from of that particular generation. Sake, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, we're all sort of um, involved in film criticism and in film analysis but uh, we've, we've also sort of dabbled in in um, in fiction here and there you know and as with with my sort of fiction writer hat on you know the next thing that I don't want to be oppressed is I, I want to be able to write characters that have got extreme views you know and, mm. and that that seems as though it could be the next area that that is going to be subject to censorship. It's yeah, and there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Just because I write a, a racist character, I'm not writing from my own point of oh, view. Yeah. And I think artists are going to have to defend that. And I think there's, there are some artists who don't want to defend it. I think the the, the battle lines are already being drawn there. Mm. And it's again, it's it's in in the way that it was difficult to defend a Joe D'Amato or Jess Franco movie or a Cannibal movie. It's, it's going to be difficult to defending depictions of racism or sexism or whatever otherism you, you want to put into your work. And I think some artists are going to back away from that, which is a shame, and some are going to go for it. And I think we're going to see a new battleground there. Mm. Fascinating. Cool. Well, I think we've pretty much covered... I was, about to say, I was about to say we've pretty much covered all there is to say about video nasties, but as is seen by any number of books being released, documentaries being made, TV, there's always more to talk about with video nasties. But I think we're probably done for today. 
just finally on the point of capitalizing on the video nasties, it's not just the big companies, even us here at Quad capitalized <laughs> on censorship by screening Alex Cox's TV version of Repo Man, uh, the one which infamously brought the term melon farmer into wider popular culture. So even we're not above making money off these movies. Thank you very much for joining us. I want to thank uh, the BFI and the Quad for supporting these podcasts. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks' time. Take care.